Welcome to Journey to the Stage. This is Brian Kinder, and I'm glad you tuned in today. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the journey of the artist and to gain insight into what has shaped them. Before we begin, wherever you're listening, if you could subscribe or follow or leave a kind review. If you've enjoyed our time, I would be ever so grateful. This is episode number nine, and it's a treat to have as my guest, Carrie Muzzy. Carrie is a pianist, modern classical composer, arranger, and film composer, and created several post-ambient rock albums under the name Candle Park Stars. Carrie, welcome, and thank you for joining me. I'm really glad to be here. This is, uh, it's cool to talk about something like Candle Park Stars in addition to my regular stuff, because it's kind of like a parallel storyline. I'm, I'm glad that you discovered both. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I discovered your music through Candle Park Stars, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing kind of how that all played out. So now I understand you were born and raised in, in Joliet, Illinois, but you're based in LA now. How did you get to California? What, what brought you to California? Uh, so I went, so yeah, I was born and raised um, basically the cornfields of Illinois, Joliet. After I went to college in Illinois, did a piano performance degree actually. So like classically trained. And then after that, I moved to New York because I had the chance to kind of apprentice, like secretly apprentice with the music director at a soap opera that I watched. Um, Cause I had sent them some demo material and said like, I really love the music you're using on your show. So that kind of led me to New York where I got my first job working um, at EMI Music Publishing doing licensing. Oh. Yeah, like doing licensing at a music publisher for about I don't know, like a year and a half, two years. I, I was really young. I was like 23 when I got the job. That's where I learned music licensing in, in that job. And then I moved over to MTV Networks working at VH1 in business affairs for like 11 years, I think. Yeah, about 11 years. Huh. Kind of on the flip yeah. side of that, doing like licensing and clearance for TV, for VH1 programming and news and documentaries. And then I finally like made the the leap to full-time composer because I was building up, trying to build up work and connections. And it, it's, it's a harder thing than I thought it would be in New York because the work really lives in LA, but there used to be some in New York. And so that finally took off and I was able to do it full-time. But then I reached a point where like, I realized if I wanted to do more or progress more, I had to be in LA. So uh, 2010, I moved out to LA and here I am today and Angelino. Nice, nice. I know that area so well. At what point did you move from being a pianist to a composer? Because that's a that's a big move. It's it's one thing to play pieces written by others, but to actually begin to write your own works. What what prompted that for you? I actually I wish I could say I was a pianist. I mean, technically I am because I did a classical piano degree, but that was never the goal. I, started, I actually started learning on organ when I was 10, learning classical organ. By the time I was 11, it, it's a weird thing. Once you learn how to play, it, it, there's a moment where you figure it out and you're like, oh, I get it. Okay, this is how this works. And so I started when I was 10. When I was 11, I started writing music because it was more fun than practicing my lesson. I really hated, like, I guess like any kid, I hated practicing, but I liked that I was learning it. And at the same time, I actually, I started playing the organ for church when I was 11, but I was also really into film scores. So during the actual mass, I would be playing film scores 
which some some people just thought was pretty music or they thought it was classical. Some people would recognize it. A little 12 year old me got in trouble. It was a Christmas Eve midnight mass. And as the mass was ending, I played the theme from Star Wars. <laughs> and I, I got in trouble. But you know what? It was a pipe organ. It had bells. It was amazing. And to me, it just seemed like, you know what? Christmas Eve, we're pulling out all the stops. I'm playing the theme from Star. I got in trouble, but I will say that the priest was kind of laughing when he yelled at me. But anyway, like, yeah, I was always I was always writing and I was always into film scores and classical. Like I was raised listening to classical music constantly. So I was always writing. And then I think when I was about 16, my mom's friend was moving and she had to get rid of a piano. So she gave it to us. And once I discovered the piano, completely different from an organ, that was it. Like, oh, wait a second. Because when you're playing a piano, I don't know if people realize this, but the soundboard in a piano resonates. So when you play and you're playing it, it's like a vibration that not only is in the instrument, but it's in you. So as you're playing, you feel this, this resonance. And I realized like, oh, this, the kind of things I want to write or my musical ideas sound really beautiful on a piano because they resonate. And yeah, so I always wrote music. And then I did, um, when I went to college, I did a piano performance or applied piano, whatever you want to call it, which is a straight up classical degree. In retrospect, I probably should have done just a composition degree. I didn't realize what a performance degree was. It was hard. It was not what I was good at. Like I was capable, but I was nowhere near as good as my peers. I think I I was under the mistaken impression that they were just going to let me sit around and write music for four years. And that was not part of the curriculum at all. But what was good was that I learned music theory and music history, orchestration, form and analysis, all these formal musical things that mm-hmm. some of them I would realize like, oh, this is, this is what that's actually called. This thing that I would do or like the way that I would write, there's a name for it. And you'd get to chapter four in the theory book and, and there's the name for the thing that you already knew. But then there would be like new topics introduced And I kind of felt like with each new thing that was introduced, I would start writing more music because it's like a new trick that you can try. And then as you study music history or history of the piano literature, you begin to identify like the evolution of music over time. And you see Mm -hmm. the different tricks that people employ. And it really breaks you out of your own rut because something that I have a problem with it, and I think a lot of composers do, is that you kind of get tired of hearing yourself we all have like a certain style or a certain something that we default to when you begin, or if you just, you know, you're noodling and you trying to get ideas and doing something like analyzing music history or theory or 20th century music, or even reading like the conductor scores for film scores, it shows you how other people do it. And it kind of breaks you out of your own habits. Oh, sure. I think it's very, very interesting. It really, I can see how that would expand not only your knowledge, but really opening the music up to you to a degree. It's a palate cleanser is what it is. And looking back, like my most angsty moments generated really good music, at least to the level that I was capable of at like 16 or 17. Right, right. Well, with two teenagers learning to play piano, I, oh. I can understand. <laughs> I, I know the, the battle of wanting them to, to practice now. I'm with you. I fell in love with movie scores at a very early age. I was, I was seven when Star Wars came out. So, you know, I grew up with John Williams and 
from there, discovering people like Jerry Goldsmith and John Barry, and a little bit later, the late James Horner, and just on and on. In fact, my son Jacob and I were we were just watching the original Magnificent Seven, and we both love the score. You know, Elmer Bernstein. It's just so <laughs> truly iconic, and so my love for film music has. I have more soundtracks in my CD library than I would care to admit now. But you have written music for many uh, film and TV projects. When it comes to composing, say for a film, how does what composers like you do, how does that enhance the movie watching experience for us, the audience? You know, what's funny is like, you probably won't, as an audience, as a person watching a film, or TV show. I mean, a lot of people do notice the music, but um, it's a given that there will be music because that's how you've always seen it. And I think that the way to show somebody how impactful it is, is to show them the same clip without music and then like to AB it. I had family visiting recently and uh, I was showing them like my studio setup and how stuff works. And my cousin said, but like, how do you actually put the music in? So I pulled up, a, it was an old TV movie I did and said, okay, like, let's just watch the scene. So we watched the scene with no music and they were like, okay, it's, you know, it's a scene, it's fine. And then I said, okay, but now I'm going to play along with it and show you how you actually scored a picture where you just kind of noodle and you play some ideas. And then all of a sudden, as they're watching it, they're like, oh, this feels like something now. And then I basically unmuted the actual score for the scene and said, so this is where we ended up. And to be able to see the A version with no music, just voices, and then the B version with music underneath it, that's the thing that kind of drives home how big a part the music plays. Right. I think most people don't realize how vital the music is to a film, not only through transitions, it helps those transitions to be smooth, but really establishing the emotional tone is so important. Now you you wrote uh, for a film called Hole in the Paper Sky, which I love that name, by the way. There's a piece that you wrote called Howard Sees the Sky. Let's listen to that here, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Thank you. 
So that's Howard Sees the Sky. What can you tell us about that piece? Very beautiful, by the way. Thank you. That's, um, that is one of the parts in the movie where everybody's crying. Um, Hole in the Paper Sky is a, it was a short film done by uh, Jessica Biel and her first, it was the first thing from her production company, Iron Ocean Films. This is kind of like the, the tail end of this weird story that I have. But I put my stuff on iTunes back in like 2006. It was very hard then as an independent to get your stuff onto iTunes. But I tried every which way and finally found an aggregator that I could go through. And this was one of those light bulb moments that made me realize, hang on a second, this is completely the way of the future. I was getting increasing sales of albums that I was posting and, and I'm not famous. I was not a known person or anything. But what happened was the iTunes genius algorithm uh, was if you were someone who bought film scores, it was suggesting, oh, and you might also like this. And so algorithmically, my album started to pop up there. So I got this email out of the blue from uh, this director named Bill Purple. And he said, my wife and Jessica Beale are partners in this, this film company. And we're doing this film called Hold in the Paper Sky. And we've been temping with some of your music from your home movies album. And we really like the feel of it. And so Jess said, why don't we just ask him if he wants to score it? And, I, and I, wow. I'm looking at this email like, wait a second. It didn't make sense how someone, a famous person, was asking me about music. Like it really, it was such a disconnect in my head that I kept reading it over and over. Like, is there a typo? Is this a prank? But the, the film was about, it stars Jason Clark who's an amazing actor as sort of like a misanthropic math genius, perpetual student guy who's miserable and has no friends. And he discovers and befriends a laboratory dog at a university that he's working at. It's a 35 minute short. It's beautiful and it's heart wrenching. It is better quality in 35 minutes than most movies are in two and a half hours. Wow. It's, I need to find this. It's on Amazon streaming. Howard Sees the Sky is the very last cue in the movie. Partway through the film, my dog actually got cancer and then died as I was finishing the movie. Oh, no. um, it was brutal. But the music that came out of it was so real, I guess. Yeah. But that particular cue, Howard Sees the Sky, is, is the end. And it kind of took a, a while to arrive at the right tone because when you have like a picture that's really heavy, you want to enhance it, but not clobber people with it. Because right. if the emotion's already there, you, you want to just, I don't know, nudge it. Because there's a fine, especially with something that's dramatic, there's a real fine line between like honesty and syrup. From a creative perspective, how do you actually go about scoring a film? Do you get the completed film first and then begin to create that? Or how does that work? Explain that to people like us who don't understand that process. I'll say it's way easier now than it was like in the old days. Because now you get a quick time that's usually pretty close to a locked cut, usually. So you know there'll be some changes, but what you get is usually like close to finished. And um, I work in Logic Pro. The clip is is attached to your session. So it actually plays as your session is going. I guess it's different for everybody, but for me, I start out with just opening up a piano or some string sounds and trying different ideas against the picture. 
Because I'll say that when you're watching something without music in it, you kind of just get a feeling of what's already, it's, it's almost like there's something baked in there and you got to find it. But you're also figuring out like the tone for something that's a short, it's actually really challenging because it's more important that the music match the scale of the film. You can't have a short that has like a giant bombastic Hans Zimmer score because it just doesn't make sense. So like less is more is the rule of the day for that kind of thing. For me, I just keep playing ideas against the picture to see what fits. And eventually you'll find something that's like, oh, that's it. You land on it. It could take five minutes. It could take a couple of days, but you find your thing and then you flesh it out. With some things you kind of have to score specifically to the picture where the director will say, it's important to hit this cut with something because this is a moment where this is, you know, realization or whatever. And sometimes it's a little bit more fluid than that, where you just need something that goes from A to B under a scene to set a mood. Sure. I mean, can you imagine maybe a psychodrama or a scary movie? If there were no audio cues creating that, that dissonance in a scene or even, you know, a strike across a, a violin a shriek, how much that sets the scene. I think most of the time we are not aware of how dependent directors are on composers to help them tell the story and create the feel that they want to create. And another piece I really like by yours is from a, a film called Renaissance. And it's the actual piece, the title track Renaissance. Let's listen to that and then we'll talk. Thank you. 
Very nicely done. Great piece. Very different feel than the than the piece we heard before. What's the story behind this piece? So it's actually not a film. It's just uh, an EP I released of like uh, modern classical trailer friendly music. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Which which is why I couldn't find the film online. So that's was very. Yeah. I was like, where where is this film? I was looking for it, couldn't find it. So that would make sense then. <laughs> yeah, that whole collection and that that piece is the first one that started it. Every now and then in the world of movie trailers, um, there's a need for classical-ish music, usually for like period film or stuff that's Oscar bait. It's not your usual sound design trailer. They need something that sounds classical. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I wrote that piece and the other ones on that album to be there in case someone needed them for that type of thing. But that was also more of a turn into modern classical, which I really like any composer will have a default style or something that they like to do automatically and modern classical slash film music is my default place now i first came across candle park stars maybe three years ago i was listening to hammock and you talk about the algorithm and how other artists are suggested and you know i think like most people, sometimes I check out the other artists because I do love to hear things that are new to my ear. Sometimes I don't, but the cover of the album Odyssey really caught my eye. It's a great picture that caused me to check it out. And it was interesting because I just came across a study about how people choose a bottle of wine they're going to purchase. 82% said it's because of the label. And that's really what drew me to click play and check out Candle Park Stars. So what made you start recording as Candle Park Stars, which is a great name. Where does the name come from, by the way? The Candle Park Stars was an experiment and such a construct, even down to the name, that I put a bunch of words on paper and I just kept writing words like refrigerator, magnet, poetry, and just wrote words and words and words and words and started to combine them into something that sounded sayable. Like, have you heard the new Blank album? And I put together the words candle, park, stars, along with a billion other combinations. And I said each one out loud, like, have you heard the blank album? Have you heard the new candle park stars album? And I was like, oh, wait, candle park star. That sounds, I like that. So that became the name, the label nice. thing and the album artwork you nailed exactly. And this it's what I've always likened it to when I talk about, there was a point where I realized that album artwork was important. It was a few albums into my own stuff. And my analogy was always, it has to be something that catches you. Just like if you're staring at a shelf full of wine and you have to take a bottle to somebody's dinner, you're going to grab the one that has the coolest label. That's where all the artwork ideas came from for Candle Park Star stuff. It's weird to me that you found that first and then found me because my, usually people find my work and then accidentally find the Candle Park Stars. So that's kind of fun that like you did it. And that yeah. you also started with the very last album in the series. <laughs> I discovered back in like 2008-ish, Explosions in the Sky. Uh, oh, yeah. Very, very good. Had never heard of them. I listened to the Friday Night Lights score album, and I was blown away. Like, my head was exploding as I was listening yes. to this. It's a and great I did, album. It's, it's amazing. And I didn't understand it. So I kept listening to it from an analytical point of view. Like, how is this doing what it's doing? Because it, I think it's like three guitars and a drum set. It's so sparse, but they're accomplishing more in this music than an entire orchestra could accomplish. Like, and it's so 
specific and limited. And I kept listening to it over and over. Like, what is this that's compelling me? I don't understand it, but I got very emotionally invested in listening to it, but I'm also not a guitar player. So I don't understand that whole thing. I tried, I couldn't do it. So I decided like, I want to try writing something like this, something that feels like this, but I didn't really have the, the vocabulary or the tools to do that. I set rules. It would be guitar focused, like electric guitar focused. It didn't need to have any specific form. It would only be uplifting, only joy. That was one of the rules. I would only write it if I felt like it. I wouldn't write it because I thought I had to. I had to be in a mood and it would just be whatever it was, knowing that I wanted it to be a more organic post-rocky sound. I did, I did approach it as a, a project. Like, I want to try this. It was an educational exercise. And I took, I don't know, I think it was maybe four weeks and I wrote the first two albums. But it, it was such a joy because I didn't owe anyone anything. Like, there was no deadline. There was no structure. Some of the pieces are three minutes. There's one or two that are 10 minutes long. And some pretty long ones too. Like, I wanted to take that much time to express the idea which meant a really long ramp up and then a really long wind down i was going to put it out under my own name because sales wise that would have made sense because i was at a point in the itunes world where i was getting a lot of album traction and i knew if i put it out under my own name people would find it and buy it and i talked to a music supervisor friend of mine who said you really shouldn't do that because people who are looking you up or finding you are looking for this one thing and this is too different from your usual shtick kind of the unspoken rules that you have to do one thing. And if someone mm -hmm. asks you to do like as part of a gig to do like a second thing or a second style and you do it, that's great. And they think you're amazing because you can, but if it's your idea, then you sort of look like a jack of all trades. Like you don't know what your voice is. That's really interesting because if you look at even in acting, how we really even see that play out in that form of art, where usually you have your comedians and you have your more serious actors but very rarely are they allowed to cross over. There are some exceptions. Robin Williams was one, Tom Hanks. But if you think about the number of other people, there really aren't very many that get to, that can make us laugh and can make us cry because you're right, you only get to do one thing. It's, so I could see that how even in music that would carry out and be true as well. It, it definitely is. You need to have a core voice. So I came yeah. up with the idea of having a separate name for this stuff. And then I realized, well, you know, I kind of like this. So I think periodically I'm just going to, when I'm in the mood, write a new album of stuff. And the Odyssey was the last album of it because I noticed that it was getting harder and harder to write and it was sounding more and more like me. Well, let's give everybody a, a chance to hear what we're talking about. Let's listen to a song from Odyssey, Ring Out Wild Bells to the Wild Skies. Oh, the great, excellent. great piece. Yeah, let's listen to that and then we'll talk about it on the backside. Thank you. 
Cool. So this is one of my favorite pieces from everything you put out on the Candle Stars. It was this poem called In Memoriam A-H-H. Tennyson had a lover, but couldn't because it was illegal in the UK. And there's this line that I still get goosebumps. And it's, um, ring out wild bells to the wild night sky, ring out wild bells and let him die. And I was so captured with that. Like just the, the wording of it was so beautiful. That's what that piece is. And in fact, on an earlier album, I think on, is it Shimmer and Gold? I have a Candle Park Stars album called Shimmer and Gold. There's a piece called In, Memor- In Memoriam A-H-H, which is the uh, name of the actual poem. Was composing for Candle Park Stars different than the work you've released under your own name? Or is the difference more in the production and the, in the instrument voices you choose to tell that story? How do those differ from each other? It is, it is really different. The Candle Park Star stuff is just a different headspace. It's a different feeling. When I listen back to it now, I realize that a lot of it does sound kind of film score-ish, but doesn't sound so much like what I would write automatically. It's like the difference between listening to Explosions in the Sky and Hans Zimmer. Right. They're, right. they're just different worlds. And I loved dabbling in that other world. It was really cool. It was fun. But again, there was a moment where I realized like, wait, this just sounds like me. And that's when I felt like, you know, I don't think I have another album left in me. So this is going to be the last one. Let's listen to another cut. Uh, This is All the Little Things uh, from the album, All the Little Things. It's a track called 15 Seconds Left to Live.
One of the things I really love about music like this is that I can listen to it while I'm working. I'm not distracted by a singer. You talked about the end of Candle Park Stars. Is it conceivable that down the road you might dust off that name again and release something? Or are you just kind of putting that away with no intention of ever picking that back up? Yeah, I guess never say never. I, I, I'm not planning on anything right now for that, but I miss it enough that I'm starting to think about it. The weird challenge in the whole modern musical landscape, though, is that streaming is a really cool technology. It's amazing, but like the whole world is a big jukebox on your computer and you can listen to anything you want. The downside is what streaming rates pay. And right. the, pract the practicality for any independent musician is that you're never going to recoup what you spend on an album because of streaming. And so it's become where it was never a financial consideration before because you could usually sell enough digital downloads at like $7.99 or $9.99 to make up your costs of like mixing and mastering and that kind of thing. It's much harder to do that now. So now there's suddenly this extra factor, which is the commercial one, which is if I'm doing this, I'm doing it to please maybe a couple hundred fans, maybe a thousand fans, but I'll never actually make the money back. And if you're looking at doing a month or two to write a new album, if I have other work that I should be doing that could make money, that kind of becomes the focus. Streaming is great for the consumer. It is absolutely terrible for the artist, for the composer, or the producer. That is really, really sad. How can people best support you? What I would tell people for any independent artist that they like, anybody who's not, you know, Adele, Drake, Jay-Z, if, if there's an indie that you like, go to Bandcamp or Amazon or iTunes and buy their latest album. Like if you give it a couple streams and you think it's good, drop what is the cost of like a caramel frappuccino on downloading an album because it does make a difference to the micro economy that is an independent artist. For me, if you're doing like playlists on Spotify or Apple Music, throw some of my tunes in there. Or if you're listening to Pand Pandora, like pull up one of my tunes or carry Muzzy Radio. But realize that every stream, even if you've just got it playing in the background, it not only adds up over time, but it also influences the recommendation engine. And that kind of thing, it's slow and steady, but it definitely helps. Awesome. And you have a website. What is, what is your website? CarryMuzzy.com. Um, That's M-U-Z-Z-E-Y. EY. Yeah. And it's really, it's more, it's sort of an updates thing, but it also kind of is a portal to some other stuff. I recorded this album called The Architect a few years ago in London. It's works for string orchestra and piano. When it came out, it was all over the front page of iTunes Classical, but it actually hit the Billboard Classical chart in its first two weeks of release. I also recorded the full sessions and, um, broke them down into music videos, essentially. So if you go to YouTube and look up my name, and The Architect, you can watch and listen to the full album on YouTube. So I started something that I call one random question, and it's a question that is meaningless. When you're, I just had some questions that I kind of put together in yours came up and I thought it was actually quite fitting. Okay, so if you're standing in front of the London Symphonic Orchestra, you've, handed, you've been handed the baton, oh, and God. it is of one piece that you can conduct, what piece would you choose? Oh my God. 
the ode to joy from Beethoven's Ninth. My I, my head would explode. I would bleed out my eyes. I would fall into a puddle of tears. I have to tell you, most people will never have the chance to stand in front of an orchestra and conduct. There's something you don't realize. And I want to tell people this so they understand like the emotional impact of an orchestra. When you're standing in front of, let's say, string players and you're conducting or even just listening, what you don't realize is that the, the physical vibration of those instruments and the disruption of air that those instruments causes, you feel it in your body. In the same way that you feel a thumping like drumbeat in your chest, you feel the vibration of all these players disrupting the air in your skin. It's intense. That would be incredible. And hopefully someday you'll get that opportunity. Well, Carrie, I am so appreciative. Thank you for coming on Journey to the State. And you are and forever will be the first classical composer that I've had on. So I thank you for that. The indie world needs more things like this. It's, it's that whole thing about engagement and knowing what music is about. There's, there's so little oxygen for music anymore because there's so much of it. I'm glad that I discovered your music. It's, it means a lot to me and I'm grateful for your time. And for all of you who are listening, thank you so much and wherever you listen. If you could follow or subscribe, leave a nice review. If you've enjoyed my chat with Carrie Leslie, I would be so ever grateful. And we will join you again on our next journey to the stage. That's a wrap.